two, three, go. Uh, <laughs> this could be a very strange evening for all of us. Uh, you're hired again to keep me <laughs> more or less on track. Uh, this last sitting for me went just like that. It was really amazing. Uh, because the mind that absolutely refused to come together to plan a talk for tonight spent that last 30 minutes trying to catch up. And it was like, gone. So, um, And watching that mind, I took a walk, I went upstairs, I laid down for a little bit. And, uh, you know, of course it just didn't stop, it kept going. And at some point, this question arose, who's trying to figure this out? Who's worried about bombing in front of 90 people who I'll probably never see again? I can say anything I want to say. You know, as long as I'm reasonably kind and not unduly profane, we're good. So, you know, I had a good, the self had a good laugh at itself and recalled Larry's... Uh, Immortal words of Stalin, no person, no problem. It's really true. <laughs> it's really true. Uh, so I really have no idea where this is going tonight. So it's an adventure for all of us. Um, so this is an unusual circumstance, and I'm going to do something that I've never done before, which is I'm going to take a poll uh, of you all uh, about what's now going to happen after the poll. So I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. I promise to be here when you open them. (laughs) Well, I'll try and be here when you open them. So close your eyes. I'm going to keep mine open. Teachers, close your eyes too. Yogis, I don't have to remind not to cheat. Teachers, keep your eyes closed. So everybody who really wants at least an hour-long Dharma talk tonight, raise your hand. Shit. <laughs> really thought that would turn out differently. Okay, let's, let's keep this going. Uh, off to a great start. Uh, everybody who uh, wants no Dharma talk, just wants to enjoy the silence and the lovely environment we've created here, <laughs> raise your hand. Uh, this is really not going well. Okay. Uh, those of you who would like um, a talk of, you know, 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, and some Q&A, raise your hand. Oh, God bless you. <laughs> All right, you can open your eyes again. Um, There's, uh, there are a number of stories that, are, that allude to what a challenging path this is uh, that we've been walking on together over this last week. Um, and it's a path that costs us everything. You know, we come, we bring the same mind into this kind of practice that we cultivate outside. We want things the way we want them. You know, we don't like it when somebody tells us to do something we don't want to do. Um, uh, Larry was talking about baby mind. There's another aspect of baby mind, which those of you who've had babies know. 
I want what I want what I want it, and, and I'm going to start just kind of murmuring, and then I'm going to yell, and then I'm going to start screaming my head off. And you better give it to me because it's not going to stop. Right? That's another aspect of baby mind. And we all bring that to our practice to one degree or another. Um, so we show up to this place and we don't like the yogi job that we get, some of us. I mean, I've had some yogi jobs that I wonder why I didn't ask for my money back. Um, we have a sort of rebellious part, some of us, and when you know somebody sits up and says, sit still, don't move, you know, unless it's skillful and it's driven by wisdom, you don't like that. Right? Um, there's often some struggle in surrendering to the schedule. And one of the things you learn early on is, you know, the schedule is the schedule. And the sooner you surrender to it, the easier the retreat's going to get. Uh, that can take years to get. Okay? Uh, I'm one of those hard nuts to crack. For me, it took a long time. Um, all of us have an element of this. And there's a, there's a price to pay for this practice, right? Uh, and the price we bump up against when we find ourselves doing something that we don't want to do and it's really hard to wiggle out of it. It's really hard to do what we do in our everyday life, which is, you know, if, if this is unpleasant, the first chance I get, I'll find some way to move away from that. Right? And then we come here, and you're asked to, to get up at a ridiculous hour. You know, uh, you're told when you're going to eat. You're told when you're basically done. You're told what work you're going to do. Uh, the sittings are scheduled. Now, sure, everybody, we, everybody knows that you come here, the mind will continue to find ways to get out of that, right? I mean, there's no work supervisor in the kitchen, so chat, 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 right? Uh, there's nobody, there's no, at least not yet, no uh, cameras in the individual rooms. <laughs> uh, you know, we've got a controlled environment, what's next? <laughs> uh, so, you know, you go back, I mean, I've spent, I've spent lots of time, you know, in my room under the guise of, practicing, snoozing out, you know, just taking it easy, getting out of the pressure cooker, right? And there's actually some benefit to that uh, because you learn something from that too. Um, but what happens is we bring our normal mind into this and we find ourselves rubbing up against stuff and it often doesn't feel good. And there's this sort of PR in the air, meditation supposed to make you feel good. Right? I mean, who in their right mind right, would pay what we pay, line up our lives in the way that we do? And for most of us, that's not a simple thing. And come here and do what we've done for the last week? If we're not a little bit, you know, a little bit off, right? And, and that's a wonderful thing. Because you pick up any newspaper, at least we've not been out blowing things up, robbing banks, beating people up, and destroying the environment, 
right? I mean, at least for a few days, this group of human beings have been reasonably well-behaved, right? So a little chatter in the kitchen, who cares, right? And this is a costly practice. Uh, and eventually, it, it, if we really, if, if we find we are pulled, if we're expressed, if our life is expressed in a way that moves us ever more deeply into this, into this work of self-knowing and waking up, it literally costs us everything, everything. Because what we end up examining is, you know, who is this me? we begin to really see that the things we rely on, it's no joke. The Buddha says we suffer because we want things to be other than they are. We want them to be stable. We want them to be predictable. We want them not to fall apart on us. That includes the people we love. That includes ourselves. You know, the Buddha talked about five daily reflections. Uh, No escaping sickness, aging, and death. That's three. Everyone that I love and all that I hold dear are of the na- right are of the nature of change there's no way to escape being separated from them he recommended that recommended those and the, the last one has to do with karma that my deeds are my closest companions i'm the beneficiary of my deeds my deeds are the ground on which i stand there's a pretty clear reason he recommend those as subjects for daily reflection daily reflection It's quite a practice, just that. Life will cost us everything. Our ideas about who we are, at some point or another, get brutally assaulted by impermanence, by aging, sickness, death. Our ideas, our longings for, for other people, for their lives, same thing. Now, it's easy to sort of tilt into you know, let's just do sex, drugs, and rock and roll because this is nothing but bad news. It can also tilt to this is enormously precious. We've been alluding to this the whole time. This is just extraordinarily precious. I mean, the next breath is literally promised to no one. I mean, this moment, I mean, we say, well, I'm going to go from here to there. There's only here. Where do we ever go other than here? It's always here. Right? I mean, are you only not here? Where are you going? It's always here. And this is where death happens. It's where life happens. And so much of this practice is about looking at how we separate ourselves from that. You know, for, by aversion. I don't like this. Where do we get this idea that we should be picking and choosing? You know, that life gives us a vote, right? In how it shows up, the only sort of vote that we get is how do we meet it? That takes a lot of mind work. There's a story that I've heard Larry told, tell about his te- here, he and Matthew, one of the teachers that they both studied with. He mentioned him last night, Ajahn Mahabua. Um, young man, of course, from California, uh, showed up at the at the monastery and wanted an interview with the Ajahn, and and uh, so they're having this conversation through a translator, and uh, 
at one point, Ajahn Mahabhuva asked, asked him a question about his practice and what is he doing? He said, I follow my heart. I follow my heart. Lovely, right? So there's this translation and sort of buzz back and forth between the teacher and the translator and all of a sudden the teacher breaks out laughing. There's another little buzz and this kid says, what do you say, what do you say? And the translator says, he says, oh, you follow your heart, your heart's filled with greed, anger, and ignorance. No wonder your life is such a train wreck. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the work. Because often that's what impels us. And it's all around me and mine. And that's the ultimate cost. That's the ultimate cost. This idea that the self has about itself of being something special. Even if I'm a total schmuck, I'm a special total schmuck. You know? If I'm really, really unworthy, then there's something that sets me apart. It's extraordinarily painful and not to be trivialized at all. Okay? Not at all. And it sets us apart. Wow, I gave the greatest Gandharma. What a wonderful teacher. It sets me apart. And that in itself is suffering. It fragments, it tears the wholeness of the human fabric, of the fabric of life, really. So what we've been doing over these last few days is starting with basically a set of tools. I talked about this a little bit the last time. We take this this mind that Ajahn Mahabua was pointing to, the sort of normal human mind. All of us come in with tremendous conditioning, deep wounds. I mean, I don't care who you are, no one gets out of childhood without a limp. Nobody. Some of us have injured our children more than others. And that's how it goes. Life bangs up against itself in the form of parents and children. And the energy is bigger in the form of parents than it is in the form of children. And children come out on the short end. And so everybody who's been a child (laughs) comes out of that wounded with a limp. And that's really what we're trying to come to terms with. And so we begin to, to, to take this, this wounded, longing, fearful, angry, separating, human, confused mind. And we offer it a, a way to begin to hold itself, if you will. And to create a kind of holding environment for itself where a certain kind of sort of basic healing becomes possible. That healing in itself can be quite painful because the way the healing happens is, and and language is slippery here, so just bear with me. There's a meeting between the woundedness in whatever form that is, fear, anger, longing, and the part of the mind that sees that. And there's a touching. And it's like touching a, a raw wound. And, and there's a part of the mind that just doesn't want to do that. 
We'll avoid that at any and every cost. Right? Because it, it, the experience of touching that is not of a balm. It's of sticking a finger in the wound. That's the experience. The mind's confused. Right? It confuses this with that. Again, completely normal. So even, the, even this sort of beginning second-order conditioning process, right, where we use things that are made up, Larry mentioned it the other day, all this stuff is made up. It's invented by the human mind. There's a lot of wisdom in it. It's, it's certainly not the unconditioned, because it's conditions. It's invented by thought and experience. But we take this, this second order of condition. Watch the breath. Stay with the breath. Come back to the breath. With the body. Anchor in the body. When the mind drifts away, come back to the body. As a way to begin to stabilize this wild child mind, you know, that's frightened and really hurting. I mean, and... I found it stunning that I can sit down with people and ask them, you know, either as a therapist or as a meditation teacher, so tell me about where the suffering is. I don't have any suffering. You know, most people out there, actually, many people out there, don't even know they're suffering. That's the level of sort of confusion. First, you have to know you're suffering. First, you have to know, my life's not working out quite so good. You know, I keep starting out this way, but end off that way. You know, I set the trap for the other guy, as Rumi said, and find I'm falling into it myself. I set the dogs after the antelope and find the dogs biting me in the butt. It's like, whoa. Right? And that, that, or a major loss. Whatever it is, we don't come to this practice because, gosh, everything's just wonderful. I mean, did anybody come to do this because your mind is like a laser and your life is without suffering? If you did, please, don't raise your hand. <laughs> please. <laughs> uh, you know, so we bring this in, and, and it's something, not, not everybody, life, life doesn't express itself like this through everybody, and like this I mean the urge to, 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 to be free of this, to heal this. Not everyone gets expressed that way. You know, my, my teacher, Vimla Takar, said it's a really rare person that comes across genuine teachings of liberation. It's rare. It's really rare. I mean, there are a lot of teachings of liberation out there. But to come across genuine teachings is rare. To be drawn to those teachings is rarer still. To be drawn to them and try and really become devoted to them and be changed by them is extraordinarily rare. So it's, right? I mean, this is a sample of humanity here, but it's a sample of humanity where life is expressed in a particular way. So we're expressed in a way that brings us here. And we're offered these tools to begin to come help the self, the mind, come to some terms with itself. And then we start to open up once there's a certain amount of stability. And, and that's hard to, that's really hard to know. I mean, we've gone through a, a sort of sequential uh, training here. Um, 
we do it because the time is compressed. Uh, much of this really needs to be refined individually, frankly. Um, it, it's like, do, am I really to be trusted to, to know when it's time to be challenged to drop effort? Is, I'm going to trust this mind around that? Right? That's a really sketchy proposition. And so it's, it's not only useful, it's important. When you begin to move into the realms of, of the truly choiceless, of the non-abiding mind, if you will, of, of awareness, to be in, be in contact with somebody about it. Um, it's so easy for the mind to fool itself about, you know, you have a state of, uh, a hit of absorption, and you get some bliss, and it's great. And you think, wow, I'm enlightened, you know? I'm enlightened. Whoop! Red flag. Red flag. But I mean, many many of us have had that experience, where we're we're caught up in this, and it's just selfing, right? And again, there's a flip side to all of this stuff. It's like all this stuff is a coin. There's a heads part and a tails part. Okay, the heads part to the to these deep absorption states are they can be profoundly healing. The tails piece is you can get stuck in them and identified with them and think they're some thing. And many people, you got to get in there with a backhoe and blasting caps to get them out of there, right? Because they are really, I mean, they're embedded. They're like a, you know, they're like a tick embedded in, you know, a really nice juicy, right? Sorry. I remember I found a tick on my arm. I'm still a little traumatized from that, so... Cut me a little slack here. Uh, and this is the first time my analogies have gotten a little bit over the edge. So I've been, I've been really well behaved here, uh, as my colleagues will attest. So this, this abiding, non-abiding mind that we've talked about, as, as this begins to get touched on, it's a deep challenge to the core of me and mine. Now, there are a variety of ways to do this. In Zen, we have koans um, that are, are really designed to push the limitations of the conditioned thinking mind to a point where things break open. Again, heads and tails to that kind of training. Ajahn Chah, a well-known Thai forest master, I mean, people say, well, there, are no, there are no koan teachers in Vipassana. Go check out Ajahn Chah. Okay? Here's a guy who would say, is this a long stick or a short stick? Long or short? And, and he's got you, right? You do, short? How about now? <laughs> long stick or short? Yeah. You can't go if when you can't go forward and you can't go back and you can't go sideways. Where do you go? In Zen, we call that the fundamental koan of when nothing you do will do. What do you do? Nothing you will do. Okay, I'll do nothing. Nope. Okay, I'll get up. Nope. Okay, well, I'll just I don't know what I'll. Nope. (laughs) I'm done with you. Nope. I, I'm not done with you. The guys, no. And now you've got to do something. 
come from that place of the non-abiding mind where there is no me and mine. So in Vipassana, in Zen, in I think any real wisdom tradition, there's, there are ways, and, and it's important, for the thinking mind to be put up against a, to see its own limitations in the clearest way. I was going to say put up against a wall, but I don't... That's, that's got more tails than heads to it. Um, that it. That it begins to see its own limitations. That's an enormously frustrating process for most people. I mean, I've had some conversations with some of you about choicelessness. Right? We talk about choiceless awareness. That's just the beginning of the really bad news. <laughs> Life is choiceless. Who gets a choice on what shows up, where and when? Who gets a choice in any of that? Life is choiceless. It keeps showing up exactly as it is. And it's quite dedicated, persistent, and loyal about that. Regardless of what the little bitty me in there says it wants or doesn't want. It keeps showing up just like this. And so, you know, the, the, the mind is in this, in this conundrum. You know, there, it's, it's been exposed to teachings of freedom. It's beginning to see the limitations. And then, you're conf- then it's confronted with, not only is life choiceless, but guess what? Your life. Start looking at what you think is choice. Who's making the choice? Who chose to get up in the morning? And invariably, when you start pushing on this, there's a point at where the, the eye starts to fight back and push back. Well, yeah, I really, I get, I agree with, you know, most of what you're saying. But, you know, this, this I really did make a choice about. I really did. Right. Who, who made that choice? Well, I did. Okay, who, who did that? Who is that? What is that? And then you're kind of also up against the basic teachings of the Buddha. He didn't say everything's impermanent except me. <laughs> right? You all are impermanent. This is impermanent. This place is already, I mean, why do we do maintenance to keep it from falling down? Right? It's, strug- it's always on its way to something else. Right? Everything's impermanent except me. And sure, the body, okay, it's, but I, I'm permanent. It makes no sense. Particularly when you start looking at, there's a seeing of what composes this, what's under this personal pronoun. Right? Uh, it's like this personal pronoun's on the suitcase. And when you're challenged to open a suitcase and you get a peek in, it's like, uh-oh. This I, this word, this thought not only doesn't tell the whole story, it doesn't even tell a little bit of it. So then, so who's making these decisions? And impermanence affects this thing we call a me. So as you begin to sort of turn, turn the awareness a bit and are challenged to turn the awareness a bit, the eye doesn't like it. 
And it really, really, fear comes up, all kinds of resistance comes up, completely normal, completely normal. You know, I mean, who wants to hear, Vimala once said, you know, this practice really results in uh, being nobody going nowhere. What, I'm going to pay for that? You know, what will my wife think? What do my kids think? I'm not, come on, I'm nobody going nowhere. Right? Try it sometime. Right? Well, if I sit down and don't make any effort, I'll just, I'll just sit here forever. Really? And then take a look at how that choice arises to get up. This is a wonderful practice for you to take home with yourselves. Begin to look at this whole issue, this whole dynamic of choice. I chose to do this. I chose to come here. I really encourage you to start looking at this stuff, not with periods, but with commas and semicolons. Because when the mind says, oh, I know, I know this, I, I did this, then there's an immediate ending of inquiry. There's a limit that's set. If the I says, oh, I know this, there's immediately a a circumference, a limitation. Check it out and see. We've talked about making a bigger container. This is not about making a bigger container. I think I'm the first one that used that, that metaphor. It's not about making a bigger container. It's about seeing these illusions of separation, of limitation. Seeing them and they begin to become permeable. They begin to drop away. And what we find is, oh, the container just got bigger. It didn't really get bigger. It's big all the time. This non-abiding mind, this awareness, this original mind, vast and spacious, it has no center. There is no center of me and mine in this. And as these things begin to fall apart by questioning them, you know, where is here exactly? Where is here? And not and, and, uh, the, the tail side to this, oh, I'm going to figure this out. Right? Oh, who am I? Oh, well, let me see if I can figure out. Who am I? That, that, that's just the, the mind playing this trick again. Right? So as you begin to engage in these practices, watch that piece. Because that's more selfing. As I've said over and over, you can't make this stuff up and you can't figure it out. You really can't. And yet the mind will continue to try and do that. Now don't worry, your friends will still recognize you. Okay? It will be okay. Life, the difference is, we, there's simply a recognition of life expressing itself choicelessly. You know, if you look back, uh, my parents didn't get to choose their parents. And so on back to whatever cave they or swamp they came out of. And all the genetics that came along with that. My parents didn't get to choose their parents. I certainly didn't get to choose my parents. I would have chosen my best friend's parents. He would have really been mad at me the rest of his life and needed a lot of therapy, but I could have lived with that. I didn't get to choose my genetics. I didn't get to choose when my sister was born. 
I didn't get to choose the fact my dad was an alcoholic. You know, I didn't get to choose when we moved and the neighborhood we moved into. None of that was chosen. And so how is it that we think, and all of the, all of the apparent decisions and choices that continued to emerge out of that had to influence the apparent choice of the college I went to. But it, it, it actually really didn't because I wanted to go very much to a couple of other schools. Clearly, I was not being expressed in that way. I went to this other school. Was that a choice? Well, I went, but was that really a choice and who chose it? Don't misunderstand that there are not decisions made and choices made and consequences for those. But see if you can find a chooser and a decider doing the choosing and the deciding. So I offer this to you for those of you who are drawn to this kind of inquiry. You know, who, who resonate to the, the, the sense, the perspective, that there are no forms. There are apparent forms. How could there be a form if everything is moving? Some things are moving very much more slowly than others. The Himalayas are moving much more slowly than I am, for sure. But still moving. And in what sense are they a thing? Yes, we live in the realm of the, of the relative. You know, if you're going to go climb the Himalayas, you'd better be well prepared. Otherwise, it will manifest itself as itself and will kill you. Okay? So it's not that we throw you know, our common sense out at the door. And we, tremendous, we get tremendously confused around things being solid that are not enormously disappointed, end up trying to control what can't be controlled, becoming angry and fearful at its unpredictability, imagining that somehow we're not the same. So these questions about who's angry, what's angry, who's choosing, what's deciding, are simply a way for the mind to turn around and take a look and see what's actually there what's actually there. I mean, you're still going to, you know, hopefully, uh, at the end of a a retreat, you may need an escort, but most of us will open the door before we go through it at this point, right? Even though the form is truly, absolutely only apparent. So we're moving in this, and this can be very confusing, and it's very difficult to talk about. You know, I, if I had my glasses on, I'm sure I could see eyes rolling up in the backs of heads at this point. <laughs> I, I get that. That's really, that's fine. Uh, but what I want to do, I want to give you some sense of where this can point to if you're drawn to it. Okay, because usually this kind of stuff is considered like high teachings and people are not ready to hear it. My experience is if you're not ready to hear it, your eyes will roll back up in your head. You'll go back to your breath. You'll do what you're drawn to. Okay. Wonderful. That's how life is expressing itself through you. And some people are drawn to this other perspective. And all I want to do is offer it as a perspective. I want to say just a bit about relationship before I 
Well, I am going to get a talk out of this, it looks like. Um, I have no idea what I've said so far. Um, Relationship. What we've said about relationship can be easily misconstrued as sort of dharmic couples therapy. I'm gonna, I'm, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, and my relationship is gonna get better, and you know, my my partner will, you know, will get along better, and uh, get along better with my boss, and you know, it has this therapeutic component. Okay, and it, and and there's certainly often that outcome. There are other outcomes. This stuff is in, unpredictable. I mean, people go into therapy or into Dharma practice with an agenda. There are two agendas, actually. And this is where you need to watch me because I'm about to... Right. Uh, there are two agendas. One is, uh, I want to be happy, but I don't want it to cost me much more than the fee I'm paying you. Right? I've been a patient a lot. I know this one well. Okay? The other is, I'm willing to talk about changing anything. Oh, but not that. Right? Don't you know? We can't touch that. Anything but that. Right? Now you're gonna have to get me back on track. Where did I leave off? Um, you were talking about relationships. Okay. And how people come in with two ideas. Okay, good. I thought I was gonna have to fire hire you, but <laughs> you're still good to go. Uh, so this whole this whole piece about the therapeutic impact on relationships is, is often true, but it's often not true. I mean, when you start doing this work, you may think you know where it's going with you. You may think you've got an agenda that, you know, Dharma practice or therapy is going to fulfill for you. If you're, if you're lucky, maybe, it lines up, you know, the, the point here lines up with where you thought you'd end up. Usually it doesn't. Okay? Sometimes relationships go like this. Sometimes they go like this. Sometimes they go like this. Uh, it can be costly, this work. Okay? And you will find that as you work with this mirror, that when... Uh, I was going to say, when, when one takes responsibility for, when one realizes that all the stuff that's going on in here has very little to do with the truth of what's out there, then, then things begin to shift. Right? I'm more concerned with my own tone of voice, my own projections. Right? The aversion, I start to wonder, you know, what, who is getting so upset here? What is this about? That in and of itself begins to shift many of the relationships we're in. Okay? But fundamentally, we're not talking about the, the work of relationship and the mirror of relationship as dharmic psychotherapy or couples therapy. We're talking about it as a path of liberation. We're talking about this seeing really uh, uh, throwing light on every corner of aversion, confusion, greed, and selfing 
that it possibly can. Right? Because it really does aim at who's so upset here? Who wanted to give a good talk? Really? I mean, who's trying to figure this out? Who's worried about stinking up the joint on the last night? Like I said, these guys I got to live with. I think I can handle them. If I had to go home with you guys, it would be a different story. Right? And it's not to say this is unimportant or, you know, I don't care. I do care. I care a lot. But the inquiry sort of cracks this thing open and then, you know, allows whatever is here to, to come out without this worry of, are you going to be happy with this? You know, it's like, okay, Roberta gives the talk about supporting the teachers and I come in and, you know, I'm batting cleanup, right? And I, I dribble one down to the pitcher and he tosses it and we're out of here. And, right? and now I'm responsible for you guys saying, God, that stunk. I've already paid enough to these people, right? But you can see how you could go down that road, right? Probably not in such a gross, obnoxious way. (laughs) It'd be a little cuter, a little more subtle, but I think you get the point, right? And so what this allows is a more free expression. And I really didn't know what I was going to be saying here tonight. And it until that up there, scared the shit out of me. Okay? Seriously. But the inquiry, for some reason, broke that open. I mean, an alternative could have easily been, I came down here in a total sweat, you know, and said, you know, I really can't do this, let's sit together for an hour. I'd entertained that, actually, as a possibility. So this, this work is ongoing. It's it's marvelously surprising. And as Larry said, relentless. But it's life that's being relentless. It's not me being relentless. There's not a me that did that. Life is relentless in wanting to be expansive, free. You know, you put running water on a downhill grade, it finds a way down. Over, under, around, or through. But it's It's following its nature. And whatever gets in its way, it's going to find some way to deal with. That's life. We don't know where we're going, literally. We don't know what the next moment is. The only thing we know is how we're expressed. This life form, form of life, is expressed in this very mysterious here now. That when you really look at it, it's not even a here now. And if that sort of piece doesn't begin to kind of make the thinking mind pause a little bit, uh, something else will. Something else will. So, the practice of being with the breath and the body, the gold standard being, and this is, this is a one to take home. Right? Am I suffering now? Am I suffering now? If you can begin to check in with that on a regular basis, that will help you wake up. Of course, you don't really get a choice about when that question comes up, by the way. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) However, you'll find that often you're drawn to that. 
And then you'll find it expressing itself through you. Yeah. Is there suffering? And in that moment, there's the seeing of suffering. If it's there and you've asked the question, there's going to be a seeing of it. And then you can work with that. With these sort of basic practices that we've been spending so much time and sweat on. The work of relationship as as a practice of waking up and as a practice of freedom, of real self-knowing that's available all the time. All the time. There's a, there's a saying, uh, one of the great bodhisattva vows, Dharma gates are everywhere, are countless. I vow to wake to them. I vow to wake to them. And if, our, if we have an intention that's expressed in that way, then the, the opportunities for waking up in relationship are everywhere. You just have to start paying attention. And the non-abiding mind, vast and spacious, and nobody home, no center. We were upstairs this morning, and... Uh, Larry found a quote by Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was a uh, teacher in Bombay who I think died around in the early 70s. And he had an influence on a number of American Dharma teachers. He was a, a, if you've seen pictures of him, he's not a very attractive guy. Um, Kind of grizzled beard and pot belly and kind of walks like that. He sold cigarettes for a living. Pretty dharmic, right? Um, and considered by everyone who encountered him and, and some people who were not easily fooled as a pretty awake guy and pretty fierce in terms of holding people to the kinds of things we're talking about. Um, so Larry came up with this, this uh, quote by him that I wanted to leave you with. Um, I, I went up ran up afterwards and I said, Larry, can you find that? And he rummaged through his and finally this thing came out. Because it, it's, it's a nice, uh, I think, pointer to this um, teaching about emptiness, teaching about the non-abiding mind, teaching about the unconditioned. But please don't lose track of the foundation that we've been working so hard for. Because you can always find the likelihood of solid footing on this. When you're drawn to this other stuff, you'll know. And if you're not, and this all just sounds like gobbledygook, please go back to your breath and your body. It's easy to find home base. Even if you can't hit the 90 mile an hour fastball coming down at you. Learn to look without imagination to listen without distortion. That's all. Stop attributing names and shapes to the essentially nameless and formless. Realize that every mode of perception is subjective. That what is seen or heard, touched or smelled, felt or thought, expected or imagined is in the mind and not in reality and you will experience peace and freedom from fear. 
The skinny on this one is don't believe what you think. Okay? Because thinking is always partial. It always tells only a small part of the story. And it's telling you all the time that it's telling you the truth. It's not. Now, Matthew read a uh, um, quote from the Baya Sutta. Uh, in only the seeing, in the seeing, let there only be the seen. When in the heard, there's only the heard. When the heard, and only the heard. And when the felt, only the felt. In the thought, only thought, etc. Remember that from last night? Uh, I would encourage you to check out that sutta. It's called the Baya Sutta. There's a, there's a, uh, I was actually going to talk about that tonight, but it just wouldn't come together. Uh, in the latest journal of Buddha Dharma, there's an article in there about the Baya Sutta that, that gives that quote and the whole sutta. And, and it's, a, it's also a very concise teaching uh, about this, this choiceless life that we live and the, the awareness that's a part of that. So let me read this to you one more time. Feel free to close your eyes if you want. And then we'll sit for a minute. Learn to look without imagination. To listen without distortion. That's all. Stop attributing names and shapes to the essentially nameless and formless. Realize that every mode of perception is subjective. That what is seen or heard, touched or smelled, felt or thought, expected or imagined, is in the mind, not in reality. And you will experience peace and freedom from fear. Thank you for your very kind attention and for your incredible effort this week. Uh, we don't end this retreat until 11 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, as that wonderful guy Ramdas said, be here now. Thank you.